1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Jennifer Kayong Lee, your host, and with me here is Timothy August, who will be talking about his book, The Refugee Aesthetic, Reimagining Southeast Asian America, published by Temple University Press in 2021. In The Refugee Aesthetic, Tim centers the positionality of Southeast Asian American artists, to develop a theory of refugee aesthetics, a way of considering how aesthetic forms are created and used by refugees, non-refugees, and institutions alike, and which illuminate legacies of warfare, militarism, and problematize myths of American benevolence. Tim looks at a range of literary and artistic works by refugees, including poems, novels, comics, and visual art by writers and artists, including Bao Phi, Monique Trong, Viet Ten Nguyen, Saint Hamid, Jia Bao Tran, and more, to argue for the agency of refugees as cultural producers who are redefining a politically, bureaucratically produced refugee image and instead imagining a plural form of refugee aesthetics. Thank you so much for joining me, Tim.
2: Thanks for having me, Jennifer.
0: I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
2: Myself? Um... I mean, I'm about I'm pretty tall. I'm about 6'2", 6'3", depending who's asking. Uh, But you're probably interested in more my academic persona. Um, Right now, I'm an associate professor of English at Stony Brook University, uh, where I serve as the graduate program director. Uh, Also, I'm the uh, co-chair of the Circle of Asian-American Literary uh, Studies, which is uh, the only national and international society dedicated to the study of Asian-American literature, culture and the arts. Um, Initially, I'm from uh, Toronto, which is a city in Canada, uh, and I did my uh, bachelor's degree at uh, the University of Toronto uh, before moving to the University of Western Ontario to do my MA in uh, Theory and Criticism. I did my graduate work at the University of Minnesota, uh, graduating with a PhD in comparative literature. Uh, I got the job here at Stony Brook. I wrote a few articles, and I wrote a book, which got me here today.
0: Thanks, Tim. Um, so I'll start with our usual big question: What brought you to this project?
2: I wrote my dissertation on you know Vietnamese American literature and food, and you know I was going around and talking to, you know, a bunch of different audiences, you know, giving talks at conferences or, you know, public talks. And then, you know, when I went on the academic job market, you had to, you know, pitch your project to uh, you know a bunch of different people working in different universities. And, you know, what I found is that, you know, like when I was trying to talk about Vietnamese American literature, uh, Vietnamese American literature and Vietnamese Americans more generally, people wanted to talk about, you know, the war and they wanted to talk about refugees and you know at first I kind of bristled against that because you know I was like well you know Vietnamese American literature and culture is more than just that Uh, but I came to realize that you know this was a way that you know different people were trying to connect with the work right so like being on the academic job market for example if you're in a room and there's you know an Africanist and they're trying to figure out a way to you know uh, to uh, access your work and talk to you uh, you know, something like the refugee experience was something that you could talk talk about and have some sort of commonality to it. So, you know, as I kind of got through to the end of my dissertation, I realized that, you know, that this refugee question was actually quite interesting and in thinking about the ways that people read Vietnamese Americans and Vietnamese American literature. And I realized that there was a structure behind it that was, you know, remarkably difficult to shake. Uh, at the same time, uh, there was a group of us uh, scholars who were, you know, going to conferences, and I remember sitting in on a, on a panel with uh, uh, Marguerite Nguyen, Catherine Fung, uh, Vin Nguyen, and uh, Idang Trung, uh, who were talking about refugee literature and refugee aesthetics, and, you know, we started chatting about it collectively. Uh, Marguerite and Catherine ended up writing a special issue uh, in uh, Mellis, the uh, multi-ethnic literatures of the United States Journal, uh, and, you uh, you know, I would say finally, you know, around the same time, I noticed there's a bunch of uh, Southeast Asian American authors who were embracing the refugee position, right? Actively writing as refugees. And to me, this is an unusual move because most of the time, whether, you know, in literature or just in everyday life, you know, people try to uh, move away from the refugee position, right? It's, it's seen as, you know, an unsavory uh, thing or place to inhabit. Uh, so that's generally where I kind of started off m- with my project and thought, okay, well, let's figure out this structure. Let's figure out the forms and figure out the ways that, you know, Vietnamese Americans and Southeast Asian American writers more generally are are engaging it.
0: Thanks. Yeah, I really appreciate you kind of, I, and I think this is characteristic of your book too, like the way you're able to articulate how kind of the personal circumstances interact with like institutional situations. Um and like forms like I, I yeah that's something i admire about your book and i admire that in your answer here too um so as you mentioned in your book many post-colonial scholars have been suspicious of aesthetics as a term that's been used to marginalize post-colonial literature but you still choose to focus on aesthetics and make a really compelling case for doing so so i was hoping you could you know tell our, our listeners since the word is in the title why aesthetics and why for refugees who have immediate material concerns are aesthetics nonetheless impossible to ignore
2: wonderful yeah well I I think it gets back to you know what you just mentioned is just how intertwined you know the personal and the institutional and the artistic are for you know uh, different populations, uh, as you know you 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 let in with your question. Oftentimes, artistic concerns are seem to be you know lesser for groups that are under immediate peril for for good reason, right? Um, however, you know one of the arguments of my book is that you know refugees are living and uh, moving through an existing aesthetic that other people have made. Right, uh, that determines how they are received, how they uh, are thought of, uh, and indeed, it even affects you know the the political debates that happen. Right, uh, April Shemak in uh, her book Asylum Speakers, you know, talks about just on, on a very individual level how uh, you know uh, border guards, border agents, um, immigration agents, you know. Uh, decide if someone qualifies as a refugee through interviews, right? So the interview itself becomes a performance where, you know, refugees or want or asylum seekers or want to be refugees have to perform in a particular way, right? They have to hit certain keywords. They have to emote uh, in a way that's convincing, right, Uh, for the for the agents. So to me, that the whole refugee experience is bound up with sort of an aesthetic, Uh, You could call it a battle or you could call it a negotiation or what have you, but it's something that I think refugees have to deal with due to their particular condition, right, and the particular way that they move through the world. Uh, On a more, I guess, you know, academic level, uh, I'm interested in the aesthetic because, you know, it concerns the form, value, and reception of artistic works. So it kind of allows me to take a look at what the works are doing but then also you know how they're received and how they circulate right which speaks to my background in world literature and comparative literature as the as how um art objects move through the world is, is of great concern to the field and you know this you know um kind of leads finally to sort of an underlying structural methodology which is you know inspired from the work of you know Edward Said you know who argues that you know aesthetic critique reta- requires detailing how a particular group is narrated into history and in the same breath you know identifying who has the power to do so
0: thank you um so you you started to touch on this i think in the your answer but i i was wondering if you could kind of tell us a little bit more um So one of the contradictions of the refugee figure that you highlight in your book is the way in which media encourages us to believe that every instance of refugee-ness is exceptional. That is, that becoming a refugee arises out of unique, singular circumstances. But you also point out that given all the ongoing wars, climate crises, disasters happening in the world... There are constantly new refugees being created, and there's a remarkable consistency between these different refugee images. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit to this contradiction and, and the kind of refugee image that you describe.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, it's, it's worth saying, you know, that, you know, there's over... 100 million people who have been displaced currently, right? Um, the refugee is now uh, a constant condition of our of our contemporary moment, right? Uh, the thing that always just, you know, jumps out to me is that, you know, there's been an, a, a refugee Olympic team in uh, 2016 and 2020, which goes to this, um, uh, you, you know, feeling that we have in the world that the, the that the refugee is going to be there for a while, right? And indeed, it's actually show, you know, we're we're seeing the number of refugees, you know, increasing, right? Um, so there's this strange contradiction, right, where we want to treat, you know, refugees as arising out of individual crises, right? Which of course they are all different, but then there's this sort of larger idea that there's the condition of refugeness is is constant, right? And it's not an exception. But we read refugee images and we read refugee literature as if it is, right? And oftentimes the point of, you know, the assumed point of refugee images and refugee stories is that um, if if people can empathize with refugees, if they can, and this is a key word that is used uh, throughout a lot of literature, is try to humanize refugees, right? Uh, that somehow they will be accepted and there'll be enough places for them and that You know they will then disappear, and the question I have is, well, what do we do with refugee literature and refugee artistic production when, okay, it's producing this empathetic structure, but we're still producing more um, still producing more refugees.
0: Yeah, it's thank you. It's a huge question, and I, I think you articulate kind of the stakes of it really beautifully. Um, So you have this discussion and perhaps it might not surprise you that this part was interesting to me, but in your chapter on the refugee position, um, you write about the emergence of two bodies of diasporic Vietnamese literature during the 1970s and 80s, um, one which was written in the language of the new land, whichever that language is. Um, So English, French, German, kind of depending on so on, like depending on the diasporic condition. And, which sought to educate the reader about Vietnamese experiences, which you refer to as narratives of invitation. And then you also talk about another body of work that was written in Vietnamese um, and which you describe as filled with wrath and anger toward both old and new lands. Um, And you describe these two groups as a kind of bifurcation between public and private narratives, which I thought was really interesting. So I, I do think in your book, you, you seem to focus on kind of the next generation which after you described previously like this new generation attempts to reconcile these two kind of separate strands both the explanatory kind of need or function and, and the rage and I, I thought it was um, I thought your reading of this poem a bilingual poem by Bao Phi called um, You Bring Out the Vietnamese in Me to be really fascinating so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how you came to this poem and And what it does and and what the bilingualism of it does.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Balfi is a spoken word poet and now children's author uh, from uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, Again, everyone should check him out. If you leave one thing from this podcast, go find Balfi's work and and read it. Um, But... um, You know, but uh, I I think, you know, whenever a new refugee group comes, you know, overwhelmingly they are unwanted in the host country, right? If there's a political, when there's, uh, you know, even at the state level, when they are accepted, you know, moving into different communities, oftentimes they're met with hostility or at the very least, you know, suspicion, right? So there's an imperative there for refugees to produce these, you know, what are called narratives of invitation, right? Uh, Where they are... Explaining, you know, why they're here, you know, what they do, you know, oftentimes, you know, talking about customs, food is a big way for uh, refugees to, you know, uh, show themselves as uh, being uh, less, um, you know, suspicious people. Um, But, you know, this is oftentimes structured in what Monique Chung calls in her academic writing, you know, the interviewer respondent relationship right? So the question is, why are you here? And then what the what the refugee body, uh, what the refugee population produces is sort of an explanation about why they're here, right? And again, it's oftentimes very non-threatening. Uh, they're trying to tell tales of, of economic success, so they won't be seen as, uh, you know, burdens on the, you know, economic structures of, of the host society, right? Uh, but because of this, you know, sort of in the, and, you know, I guess I should Mentioned that you know in in the eighties and nineties you know we had when uh, a lot of Vietnamese American work was uh, produced as biographies that were supposed to present a voice of the other side of the war quote unquote uh, and there were often uh, people speaking and then ghost writers kind of translating or or co-author translating these experiences for a more general i.e. you know um, mainstream you know American audience. Then you know we get to the you know mid nineteen nineties, which is when we start to see, you know, demographically uh, a, a group of Southeast Asian American authors, you know, who had the linguistic and institutional access to write narratives of their own in their own styles, right? And you know you see this negotiation of like, well, how are we telling a Vietnamese or or Vietnamese American story? But in the way that, in the ways that we want to tell it, and this gets back to Balfi's poem, you know, you bring out the Vietnamese in me, which, um, you know, you know begins with him, you know, talking about let me take you for a ride on my refugeeography, where he takes narrative control of the poem, and uh, you know, while at the same time, you know, leaving little trails for the. Uh, for the reader to uh, latch onto, right? So, as you mentioned, it has you know some Vietnamese words in there, but they're Vietnamese words that you know you can intuit or you can move through in the poem. So it's still his direction; it's his force that we're left with, uh, but still entreating the reader to follow along.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off
0: yeah i also i want to second what you said about Baofi after yeah when i was reading your your book i i I googled him and um there was like a recent news segment produced about him i think it was like post-covid he was wearing a mask so still out there um writing performing incredible poems highly recommend to all our listeners um uh yeah I something that strikes me in your response is um the ways in which kind of at, at least at, in in these particular dynamics like it speaks to like a Vietnamese American context but also to me really resonates with like a larger kind of I think a lot of you know Asian American writers have kind of grappled with um the explanatory like the necessity of explanation versus um I, I don't know if simply expressing is I don't know that simple is ever the right word, but refusing to explain. Um and I, I think that like that kind of like highlights, I don't know in in your next chapter, you move to kind of discuss, I think, the relationship of like Vietnamese Americanness within a broader like Asian American context. And one of the things you talk about is the term Asian America as opposed to the term Asian American. And I I thought that distinction was really interesting. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, you know, people throw around the term, you know, Asian America, you know, rather, you know, loosely, but, you know, if you say like, let's go to Asian America or can you point to it, uh, people generally would not, right? I mean, we can talk about, you know, little Saigons, right, that are more ethnically specific, right, or little Manilas or something like that, that we have, you know, collectively decided there's sort of uh, smaller spaces, you know, relatively um, bordered spaces within the U.S. that are considered to be these small, you know, ethnic enclaves. Uh, But Asian America itself and Asian American is this idea that's a, you know, coalition amongst vastly diverse groups of people. Uh, So the question is, you know, like, where is Asian America, right? Uh, Oftentimes it's seen as something that's intersubjective, something created through the relations between different Asian Americans, right? Uh, But what I'm saying is that, you know, refugee literature in particular within the boundaries of Asian America is, is concerned with space, right? Because refugees have been you know displaced right and therefore space is you know uh, very important to them and and I take a look at a couple different uh, works where you know one is uh, the reeducation of Cherry Chung by Amy Fon which speaks to a uh, which is a fictional account that has a uh, Vietnamese American who creates a development that mirrors the developments in Orange County in Vietnam. Right, so he kind of takes the style of Orange County, of Orange County houses, and recreates it in Vietnam for uh, refugees or Vietnamese Americans who want to return to Vietnam. Right, so it's kind of returning to your to your. It's advertised as the real home, right, uh, while still keeping the comforts of of the U.S. Right, so I guess you know through that chapter is I want to emphasize how you know refugee writers creatively try to think about spaces and actual spaces that you can inhabit, uh, in the U S and then how you can even transport those spaces and transport those styles. Uh, on one hand, that's a very, uh, you know, noble, creative and, uh, you know, enabling, uh, uh skill the idea to understand the precarity of space and to see it as malleable but one of the points that i make near the end of the chapter and this is something that evan lea two mentions as well is that you know because of this refugees can uh then take on sort of an imperial form themselves right they can go take over other spaces as they kind of look to grow their space right so there's a there's a tension there that exists still
0: yeah definitely um so In your chapter on the refugee personality, you turn to Viet Chen Nguyen and his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Sympathizer. But you approach this text differently than you have other texts in your book in that you examine Viet Chen Nguyen as a public figure alongside kind of the publicity work he did for his book and in addition to the novel itself. And you use the phrase unitary performative piece to describe this combined kind of public figure and novel which you then analyze so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the significance of Nguyen commanding such a public presence as a Vietnamese an American Asian American and refugee writer and how as a figure he illuminates kind of a lot of the concerns and and arguments that you've been putting forth in in your book
2: (sighs) I mean, just as someone who's you know worked in Vietnamese American spaces and has been welcomed to many Vietnamese American spaces, I think you know when Viet won the Pulitzer, you know, uh, it was just astounding, right? That you know, you know, a Vietnamese American, a refugee, could be winning the Pulitzer Prize. It was it was breaking new ground, and you know, like the book itself, you know, is is a remarkable work. But to me, I was just fascinated by the way that he would then negotiate this new position right this new uh, this new figure this new personality right and you know when you if you go onto his website you know and you check out his speaking schedule I mean at least for the first two years like he was on the road for you know two-thirds of the year you know and you know he had you know a young child at home and a family and everything like that and I was just thinking, you know, like what what, moti- what motivates him to do this and, and what is he crafting? And to me, one of the most remarkable things is just, you know, trust me, I've read way too many interviews and watched too many you know, events of his, you know, he keeps on coming up with new material. And what struck me is just how much of an educator he was as he walked through this, this world. I mean, he's moving on in some ways from being a professor, uh, you know, as his main gig, I guess. But I was watching him just, you know, give Asian American Studies 101 talks, you know, essentially, as he moved through, you know, all these different spaces. And he was not just going to, you know, university campuses. I mean, he was talking in New York Public Library, dealing with public audiences, and then oftentimes, you know, talking to um, uh, veterans groups, right? You know, which, you know, as a Vietnamese American man, you know, this is to me would be a rather intimidating group, but, you know, he would he would take that on, right? And would really uh, address it. So that's why I, I was just fascinated on watching this whole performance happen, right? Thinking again about the circulation of his work himself, right? And, uh, you know, in many ways, you know, redefining, you know, what a refugee could be, right? And he was so explicit on stating that it was a refugee text, right? Uh, even though the text itself isn't you know overly concerned with, you know, the passage or acculturation in a way that is uh, bounded by those, but rather it becomes part of the experience through which he develops the character. So,
0: yeah, yeah, he's he's very intentional, I think, in all his, in all all the publicity about always saying like he, like his text, but also that like he is a refugee, and, and you mentioned that in your book. Um.
2: To, he's, it's
0: also sorry. What go on?
2: Yeah, and he's just remarkably disciplined on how he messages. You know, I mean, whether he's on Seth Meyers or whether he's you know talking to a veterans group or talking to a group of five people, you know, he's his endurance to me it was really remarkable.
0: Yeah, it's also it's so interesting to me how I mean, and I, I think you're you're I I agree with you that when you say like oh it was like astounding that this like a Vietnamese writer could win the Pulitzer. But it's also interesting to me how like in and maybe he's just very humble, but um it in interviews like Viet he said that like it was like the the cultural moment was such that like it, it is incredible that his book won, but he was like it was it was a moment where like there was bound to be like Vietnamese writer winning an award like this like he was like my book was just like (laughs) the right place right time and I'm like not not sure it was totally that but that is how he talks about it which I I think is interesting and I perhaps speaks to kind of um what you're saying about him really being in control of like the messaging and of also like taking this role on as like a kind of educator as well and um I think like in your book you mentioned like was it a Facebook post or like some social media post he made um, when he won that he um, like specifically kind of ties it back to like a legacy of Asian American studies and ethnic studies and he is always very careful to frame it as like not just the individual but like part of kind of a collective.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to go too far. I don't think Viet is that humble. I mean, he, <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: he he has been on the road, but
2: I mean, he's, he's he's a better academic than me. He's he's a better looking than me. He's just a better person, you know. <laughs> uh, I think on, I think I'm funnier, but you know, let's let's put that on record. Yeah, tired, but, you're
0: funnier than most people too.
2: <laughs> but um, but yeah, absolutely, he does, uh, but. Two two points. Number one, uh, getting back to the earlier point that, you know, we were talking about is that we do also need to keep in our minds that, you know, he's winning the Pulitzer Prize and we're like, oh, wow, how can this, you know, this Vietnamese American man is winning this prize as a refugee, as there's more refugees than ever being produced. Right. So like on one hand, there's this huge accomplishment that, you know, he has, you know, Achieved, right? And, and he's creating. Yet, in the same breath, we also have to remember what's going on in the world, right? And it's interesting to think about the relationship between, you know, aesthetic force and, you know, the creation of a personality and/or perhaps even a celebrity. Yet, the endurance of, of you know, the creation of refugees themselves, right? And, and one of the points that I make throughout the book is that, you know, the refugee image focuses on uh, the individual or bodies right? Uh, at times at the expense of the the global conditions that create refugees. Uh, but then sort of to get to your second point about, um, uh, the collectivity, uh, he, as you mentioned, yes, he's, he's very conscious of relating it back to ethnic studies. Uh, he's not a fan of academic writing necessarily, but he's still very much, uh, uh, an advocate for the academy and particularly ethnic studies, right? And I think that should not be discounted, which is why you know I, he's he walk, you know, he's being a professor in a, in a public forum, which I think is again a really interesting move for him to be making.
0: Yeah. So, in in the closing paragraph of your book, you state that the refugee position is a choice and a strategy, and I thought that was both a very concise and very beautiful articulation of what you show us throughout your book about how people are made into refugees through really violent kind of traumatic circumstances beyond their control, but how for refugee writers and artists engaging with refugee aesthetics as you term it is a, is about making choices, choices about how to tell stories that challenge our understandings of the US as a nation, about militarism, warfare, capitalism and more. And one of the ways in which you crystallize this issue of choice is in your discussion of non-refugees who produce art and literature about refugees and how they hate, they grapple with the issues of refugee aesthetics. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how these non-refugee artists and writers help illuminate, the stakes of the problem of refugee aesthetics.
2: So, you know, as I was going through the book, you know, and if, you know, the premise of the book is that I was identifying, you know, a refugee aesthetic or, you know, a a refugee, refugee literary style or particular ways that refugees are presented, you know, what I'm doing is I'm saying there's a difference between being a refugee, right? And refugees are people who live complex lives or not complex lives or whatever, and the ways that they are then represented. In other words, we are always only afforded a partial view through the representation of refugees or frankly anyone right uh, So if I do grant the premise that there is a refugee literary style, then it opens up that is you know not necessarily tied to the authenticity of a refugee experience, then I open up the possibility that other, people can take on a refugee style. Like, once you identify how it works as a story, as a way of developing plot or creating certain effects in the audience, other people can engage it. And indeed, you know, in my last chapter, you know, I look at a couple, you know, authors and artists who, you know, are not, you know, uh, conventionally considered to be refugees, right? Um, And thinking about, you know, their own representations. Uh, One of them is... uh, you know, more of a middle brow book that ends up with, you know, a, a, a nice ending, right? That isn't particularly complex. Everyone kind of gets together to help the refugee. And, you know, that kind of happens. Uh, you know, other representations speak to this idea of, well, you know, the refugee condition is, is a human problem, right? It's not just about us. It's about, it's not just about refugees, it's about everyone, right? Uh, and and I get the efficacy of both. Uh, but to me, you know, those kind of miss. No, so it, it you know refugee experiences about the refugees too, you know, or like most pressingly about the refugees, right? So the question is, you know, like what's this place for refugees as the refugee style ages, right? Um, and you know, one thing I mentioned is, you know, I to look around Southeast Asian American uh, artists, but they are now, you know. Uh, n- not the newest group of refugees and there are new groups of refugees coming in from, you know, Syria, Sudan, you know, Venezuela, a lot of different places. And so the question is, you know, like, what's the role for, you know, refugee writers who have been taken up this refugee mantle as their, you know, temporal condition of being refugees kind of fade. Now, one of the premises of the book is that these refugee authors are saying, hey, even beyond the legal designation of being refugees, I still am a refugee sort of as a as a condition, as a position. Uh, But again, you know, if we think about the urgency of the new stories, you know, like what do uh, Vietnamese American and Southeast Asian artists do? And and one thing I talked about at the very end was the idea of curation and uh, creating organizations and forums, right. uh, For, you know, refugee artists and kind of becoming editors or, uh, you know, Lawrence Manbu Davis, working for, you know, the Smithsonian Asian Pacific Center uh, or the Asian American Literary Review, you know, is, is someone who kind of curates a lot of stories, not just of refugee stories, but he is in a position to do so. So I think that's uh, an interesting when we think about what the future of, of refugee aesthetics are and the different ways they can develop, particularly for the Southeast Asian American community.
0: Yeah, I really appreciated you grappling with that, that question. Um, even just like I don't know, a random conversation I had with a friend a few weeks ago, we were talking about how like adoptee narratives also often, like there's, they seem to be like an aesthetic form in a way that is separate from adoptee experiences, but then like adoptee writers are also taking on that form. And so there's this kind of tension. And I I think with Asian American literature and Asian American studies right now too, as we see more and more people, you know, taking up Asian Americans (laughs) within you know, they're writing and art, like, yeah. It's a, it's, it's a question that does not yet have like. It, it's a question that continues to, I think, be troubling or challenging for people working on all sorts of, um, kind of I- identity-related like categories of analysis, as a, it's tied to like literary cultural production. But, yeah, I mean, I, you
2: know, when, <laughs> I, when I first started my PhD, you know, like I, I. I went to the library to check out the books on Vietnamese and Vietnamese American people. And it was, you know, literally, you know, at a university library, which has a lot of books, you know, it was literally, you know, like half a shelf and it was, you know, populated mainly by books with like people smiling in conical hats being like Vietnam and it's people, you know? Uh, And I, you know, which was a big motivator for me to kind of work on it. And, you know, the books that were out at the time, I mean, Andrew X. founds Catfish and Mandala, Monique Chong's The Book of Salt, of course, you know, Lan Cao's work. Uh, but really, you know, there was like a handful of work, uh, myself and like, fellow friends and academics of my generation, like, you know, Catherine Nguyen, you know, we literally would say like, oh, there's like a new Vietnamese, you know, American book out. And like, she had a spreadsheet that she'd punch it into and like we could count the number of books that were out there. Now, you know, you go to, you know, um, Viet, uh, Viet Thang Nguyen and, you know, Isabel Thuy Palud, you know, run, you know, the Diasporic Vietnamese uh, Artist Network, uh, which has, you know, a series of, of events, uh, that have been going on, you know, since the pandemic, um, uh, there's a new series that is looking specifically for, you know, a, Uh, Vietnamese, diasporic Vietnamese writers, uh, if you go to the Association for Asian American Studies conference, you know, you can go to a whole day of panels just on refugee literature or Southeast Asian American literature. So we've seen a drastic change in the, you know, 15 years I've, I've been doing this. And, you know, this has to do with demographics, right? Of course, you know, Southeast Asian Americans have generally, you know, grown up. So now that they're, you know, they have linguistic and institutional access, Right, you know, versus you know their parents were recent immigrants and didn't have you know these these opportunities, uh, but then you know I also think it's been the work of you know a lot of people to really promote it, like people like Monique Chung, people like Big Nguyen, people like Viet Isabel to to make it happen. Bow Fees, Bao you know, a, a mover at in Minnesota, you know. So
0: yeah, thank you so much, Tim. So we've taken up a lot of your time. I have just one last question. What are you working on next?
2: Um, I'm so, you know, as an academic, right. Uh, you know, you write your one book, which gets you tenure, which was very nice. Thank you everyone. <laughs> and again, you know, many thanks to all the, the artists and, you know, uh, colleagues that have, have worked and given me the opportunity to write, you know, the first book, I'm truly, honestly humbled. Um, the you know, but then you know, you once you have 10 years, you're supposed to write a second book, uh, which will then hopefully get me to you know full professor. Um, the second book I'm actually returning back to my dissertation, which was, as I mentioned earlier, on Asian American uh, literature and food. And and I'm titling it The Culinary Unconscious, right? Um, Food and Asian American literature. And and one thing that always strikes me is that we have this, you know, people take a look at the phrase, you know, uh, you know, tell me what you eat and I shall tell you who you are. And they, uh, process it in the same way that they, uh, think about Ludwig Feuerbach's aphorism, you know, you are what you eat. Right. When, when I look back to brilliant Savarin's, you are what you eat, uh, tell me what you eat, I should tell you what you are. Uh, it's a remarkably different process, right? it involves this process of telling. Right. So the question that I have is, look, if you think about the most intimate things that we have in life, eating is one of those, right, that we do. And if anyone's going to know about what we eat, you know, why it would be us. So the question is, you know, like, why should we need to tell someone else what we eat in order to have them then tell us who we are? So taking that as a point of departure, I'm looking at, you know, Asian American texts and food. And again, food and Asian American texts have oftentimes been seen as a realm to explore, um, you know, intergenerational communication, particularly between, you know, mothers and daughters, you know, or it's been seen as something that is based around uh, the the real world conditions that Asian Americans, vast numbers of Asian American populations have had to, you know, work in, like whether we're talking restaurants, canneries, farms, et cetera. This is the point that, you know, Anita Manoa, Robert Cheeson uh, Q, Martin Menelanson, you know, they all talk about this uh but i'm you know i want to think about it. okay like what is it as a literary style then to talk about food and particularly from the asian american position you know why are they telling what they eat right and i see it as very different from just eating
0: that sounds super cool i i look forward to seeing your book when it comes out um me too (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for joining me today tim
2: Awesome. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Honestly, it's, it's truly an honor.
0: And take care everyone. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved. We are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry.